Hi, I'm Daryl Gregory. I write Dracula Company of Monsters and Planet of the Apes for Boom Studios, and you're listening to Funny Books with Aaron and Polly. Because I want to, I want to enter into a state of bliss, you know, beforehand. I think so, we'd, have, I, I think we would have made your day had you listened to the reviews. Cause, oh, really? Because yeah. <laughs> I we, should have done it for the ego boost then. So let me tell you how this went. Um, we were included on the Boom uh, review page, so you know, we're able to go out there oh, good, good. and download really anything from Boom. And I was, it wasn't a week where com- uh, Dracula Company of Men was coming out, and I was going, oh look, you know, it's collected. So. I pulled it down and I read it, and I mean, it was, I couldn't read the next one fast enough. And so I, I sent an email to all the guys, and I'm like, guys, you have got to read this. This is so good. It's the best thing I've read in forever. And you know, sure enough, Paul and Wayne and Andrew all read it, and they're just like, oh, my God, that was wonderful. And I mean, we've all been on it since then. Oh, well, that's great because it's a real sleeper comic. I mean, because, you know, one, it's an independent, you know, it's coming out for Boom. It's a smaller comic. And I think, you know, getting swamped in all the Dracula stuff that was coming out from Marvel, you know, it was it's a, it's a real underdog comic. And I got to say, I'm real jaded about my uh, my vampires and even more so the character sure. Dracula, because, you know, I, I, I in, in a lot of respects, I don't think there's been a good uh, Dracula book since Marvel Wolfman did Tomb of Dracula. Oh, yeah, which is such a classic. Yeah, and, and so I told the guys, I said, this is the best thing I've read since Tomb of Dracula. I mean, this, the, I, it, high praise from me. I, I thoroughly enjoy Company of, of Monsters. Well, actually. let's think, you know, and, and I'm thinking it's a, you know, it's a kind of book that I, I have this theory that it reads better in trade because it's a slow builder. Uh-huh. Because uh, it doesn't start off with, um, you know, lots of slangs and stuff. So I think because it was a slow build, and this is Kurt... Basically, um, you know. So, what, what are we are we recording? By the way, yes. Yeah, yeah. We're all right. <laughs> just to make sure, like, I don't say anything. Like, oh wait, I thought we were off the record. I was about to slam. <laughs> were you about to slam Kurt? <laughs> I was to slam Kurt, man. Um, no, he delivered. He he. Uh, his outline was just beautiful because he's got this three act structure, um, and it is a slow build. And and the twelve issues of the first year just add up to a, a beautiful story. And so he had this outline and then they brought me on um, because basically uh, Chris Robertson basically uh, forced them to hire me. I think he handed them my novels and uh, said, you should hire this guy. And so um, I don't know why they went for it, but I'm awfully happy to be there. Now is company and, of uh, monsters, your, your first comic that you've written. It is. Oh, wow. I've been a comic book geek my entire life, so yeah. I was tremendously jealous of Chris, and I'd become friends with Paul Cornell and Bill Willingham and those guys, and um, and uh, Chris and Paul especially, they've been you know writing prose as well as comics, and uh, I was just you know extremely jealous, and I and I kept telling them that as well, and so um, yeah, so they got me on a boom, and. Uh, 
Kurt provided the the storyline, a really kind of fleshed out outline for the the story arcs. And then, of course, like anything, like even my own outlines, you know, it changes over time, sure, somewhat. Um, but the the bones of his plot were just it's it's just a solid three act structure, and but it builds and builds until um, you know you start out with this character Evan who's kind of uh, such a such a wishy washy guy being manipulated by everybody, and then he has a complete transformation by the end of the twelve issues, and so I'm hoping people will will twig to the fact that we have a real character arc going, and um, you know and that they'll hang with us and try you know try us out. Well, I am I am absolutely digging it. I thoroughly enjoy that book. Well, actually, since we're we're kind of already talking here, and we'll get to some of the the more uh, bumper stuff later that we wanted to ask you about <laughs> the bumper stuff. Because I want to ask you before we before I lose the the thought, um, because the other day we we were it, you haven't listened to the podcast yet, but we were saying you know that I had read in previews issue twelve final issue. You just referred to issue 12 as the final issue of the first year. <laughs> okay, so where did you read that it was the final issue? Uh, I think in the, the previews catalog, it li- it's listed as final issue. Because Okay, so here's the thing. They were planning on going for 12 issues and then seeing what happened, you know, seeing what happened from there. So it was always planned as this 12-issue arc. Um, but I was told – and, and and hopefully I don't get in trouble with Boom. There's like, no, you know, it's a continuing series, and then if the sales work out, we'll just keep on going. Uh, but really, Kurt's outline starts off as it's a 12 issue, it's a 12 issue arc. Mm-hmm. Um, but evidently, I think announcing from the beginning that you just want to do 12 issues uh, will kill sales. Right. Uh, there's there's some sort of um, voodoo going on there. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm new to the business, so it's all sausage making to me. I'm like, really? That kills it? I, I'd be attracted to – I was always attracted as a reader um, knowing which things were – had a more novelistic sure. you know, structure to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always liked it like – I don't know if you – like the – I remember just loving the 12 issues of Squadron Supreme. Oh, yeah. Back in the 80s, I thought, oh, we're going to tell an entire story and we're going to really change the world by the end of that story. Um, so I, I, and that's my default mode anyways, is to, is, is the novelistic kind of structure. Cause I, I think, you know, in, in my books, my own stuff, I tend to uh, kill off everybody anyway. So <laughs> usually there's no room, there, there's no room for a sequel because I've either blown up the world or, you know, killed all the likable people. Well, you know, as, as a reader, you know, when you, when you're able to have that finite collection, you know, you can have the entire thing. You know, and whether it's you know twelve issues or seventy issues, it's nice to be able to say I've got it all. You know, I've got it all, and it, and it yeah. makes a complete story. Yeah. And I've talked about this with with, with Chris and, and Bill Willingham. Like we're all jealous. Like Bill has like the perfect story engine. We were talking about story engines. Like Fables is just can you can spin out as many stories as you want, and he can do arcs that feel complete in themselves, but the world is so rich that you could keep going. And so sure. I haven't figured out how to do that. I'm I'm trying to learn how to do it with Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. And um but I just think that it's such a gift because it's a it's a completely different um set of skills. And but if you can build an engine that will keep generating stories and have you know, I think Bill's cast is just huge. Mm-hmm. So he can tell any number of stories in any number of genres. He can switch from superhero to noir to war stories. Um, I just think that's such an amazing thing. So how does it work? You know, uh, Kurt uh, 
Busiek. Am, am I getting his name right? Busiek. Busiek. You know, Kurt it's like Busiek. B Y O O. Yeah, sick. So he he comes up with this idea, throws it at Boom, and goes, "Let's do something with it. Don't do something with it. I don't care." Yeah, how does that work? <laughs> I'm Kurt Busiek. <laughs> I got stuff to do. That's right. That's right. And I think there's a God damn it in there. I'm Kurt Busiek. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how I felt. It was like, oh, Mr. Music, sir, thank you for letting me to work on, on your pro- project. Because um, I'm such a – I am actually a really huge, huge fan of Astro oh, yeah. City and Marvels. Marvels is just a, um, as, as a touchstone kind of book for me. Oh, absolutely. But, but your, your question, I guess, is like how does it work? Like what's the process like? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So he came up with this original outline. And then we we talked about the story. We talked about tweaks to the tweaks to the outline, and then we just started writing scripts. And then he, uh, as well as the uh, the editor Daphna Pleben, um, uh, they review every script. So I get done with a draft of the script. We send it off to Kurt and Daphna, and they give me notes, and we um, we argue about stuff. But um, uh, almost, you know. Almost everything from Kurt's outline is in there, and then for the changes, we'll argue through it. But the, the great thing about working with Kurt is he, he's completely unprecious about any of this stuff. He's all, he's all about the story, and he made it clear to me. He goes, look, this is the beginning outline. You've got to take over the story. Um, and he made room for me to do things like just, you know, I've invented a bunch of characters, like all the vampire hunters. Mm-hmm. He sort of had in his outline, there's probably four of them. There's this one and the main woman. Uh, but then he said, uh, you know, go to town. Um, so a lot of um, – he sort of created the the bones of the story and then really gave me permission to um, to go out and flesh things out. And then we could keep talking about stuff as the process went along. It's It's been a great experience. It was like it, – it's it's just such a beautiful experience to come to comics for your first time because oh, – Oh yeah, because coming from the prose world, um, what the real important difference with comics is just the structure. Yeah, you know, you've got this really tight structure, twenty-two pages, um, and you've got, um, and and of course you have this larger arc structure. And it curse telling me things that I don't have to think. I've never had to think about before at all. Like, well, remember, we're going to collect these in issues in four issues. So in issue number five, you got to recap somehow. You got to bring people on who didn't see the first volume. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm yeah. I'm not used to having to recap in like in the middle of a novel. <laughs> like, like all of a sudden. By the way, what you just read? Here's what happened. And is he talking to you about page layouts as well? Like, you, you know, how, how to do a double page spread and how to pace that in your script? Or were you figuring uh, that well, out on your own? Uh, no, I'm not figuring it out on my own. Yeah. Um, he's he's helpful with that. Um, yeah. But I also had – I've got like a secret weapon. I've got, I've got Chris Robertson and Matt Sturgis. I especially hit up yeah. a lot. Yeah. And uh, when I first got this job, I'm like – Dudes, you guys have to tell me everything. I want all the <laughs> secrets. <laughs> I want the keys to the kingdom now. Um, and Matt, uh, like Matt, especially took me to school. He had um, he went through. Okay, here's what you here's what here's what four panel layouts are good for. Here's what five panel layouts are good for. Here's where six. Here's why you never want to do eight. <laughs> um, you know, stuff like that. Here's how a two page spread works. Um, and plus, they gave me all their sample scripts so they could say, look, here are the scripts we've done. Um, because that was a mystery to me because I'm coming at it from the outside as a reader. Right. I'd never, you know, seen a comic book script except for maybe, you know, sometimes in the back of like a graphic novel, they'll reprint those. 
but I'd never seen really a working script and you know uh, the difference between panel descriptions. Um, you know how much detail do you provide the artist? You know how many photo references? Um, you know, or is that stepping on their toes? Like I didn't want to like uh, come off to to the artist as saying, "Look, this is exactly the way you have to draw this." And I am now the diva in charge. Um, <laughs> I thought that would not go well. Right. By the way, if you guys ask me questions, I'll just keep talking and talking. So you can feel free to jump in any time. <laughs> and we like that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So, you know, we, we've been talking about Dracula, Company of Monsters, pretty much since we started. But like you mentioned, it, it is, you know, it's by Boom. It's, it's kind of a, uh, a smaller print run, more independent title. You know, obviously, we've talked about how it's outlined by Kurt Busiek, scripts by you, um, art spot. Beautiful art, art by Scott Godlewski and Damien Cossero. Um Scott's the was the main artist and and did a lot of the character designs, but Damien did some some great work there too. I mean, um, he and they've been so great to work with. It's just you know a tremendous amount this is this is probably the most fun part about switching from prose to comics is it's like oh look you get to see the pictures hmm. uh i'm a, i'm enough of a newbie that i'm like this is great i i typed this thing out like um uh, make it rain and then they like come out with this two-page spread of a beautiful rainstorm where you know dracula kills everybody <laughs> and that's, that's uh, and tremendous i have fun. to say i'm a big fan of all the impaling so (laughs) (laughs) that was my one that was my one thing i'm like look he's vlad the impaler i want to have lots of impalements and so um kurt said okay and i told him about my idea i wanted to have the impalement not to not to have any spoilers here but a big statue (laughs) that'll be in the lobby of this of this uh corporation and uh by the end of it uh i I want people impaled on it so let's make that happen well, and, and I've really appreciated some of the artistic turns, like, you know, on, on some of the cover pieces. There's been one or two that, that almost look like homages to uh, Gene Colan, you know, from the, from the old Tomb of Dracula. Oh, yeah. Stuff. And I just, I, I've really just enjoyed everything about the book, you know, from your writing to, to the art on the pages. It's just been fantastic. And I promise I won't spend the entire interview gushing, but it was. <laughs> That's fine with me. We may have to go offline, and you could just keep talking to me. I'll, I'll record this for my own, so I can play it back. There like, you, you know, go. Like, yeah, in my car when I'm weeping by myself, you know, I can I can put in the tape. So, what's the what's the relationship between you and your artist? How do y'all collaborate on this? Well, it's um, it's it's really been interesting because I was so new to this. I didn't I didn't know exactly how this would work because they're the ones who found Scott. He had done um, some work with them on Codebreakers, and um, I think that was a six issue run or a four issue run. Um, and uh, so they basically hired him, and it was a, it's a really good match. He does these angular figures, and he does great um, character acting. Um, so. Um, it just just with gestures and facial expressions, I, I just really like the work he does. And so the relationship basically, though, is um, at first we were – we didn't know each other and everything was going through the editor. So I would write the scripts and then Daphne would send them on to Scott and then Scott would draw things up and then, then I'd see them um, – you know, later on in the drafting process, I'm like – and we do some sort of small corrections. But, you know um, – very early on, it became much more, you know, interactive. I remember one point I was sitting at Starbucks. I thought this was such a 21st century moment. Like, and we needed to draw a map to figure out what was the layout I had in mind for this this uh, 
this sort of basement lab where lots of stuff is going on. Where are things placed? And so I'm writing in my regular analog pen and paper notebook and then you know taking a picture of it with my phone and then sending it to scott and daphna and then they're and i'm thinking this is so great i'm i'm actually living in the future for a brief moment here <laughs> um yeah and so that's been and as as time's gone on um we do more and more of that kind of back and forth and and also i can say to things like say things like okay scott remember the thing you did in this issue let's do that again because his layouts um He's just he, he does this thing that um, that keeps blowing me away every time he does it. I'll I'll have in the script something like okay, there's four or five panels, and somehow through the, through the magic of layout, he can make it look like the most important panel is like a full page spread, you know, and and do the insets and pull off little moments in the insets. Um, but it, the emotional impact is like a full page full page uh, like a splash page, mm-hmm. and. Um, I just think I'm just uh, amazed by that kind of stuff, and that's that's the kind of thing where I didn't want to overspecify because he's got such a gift for that. And Damien, Damien too, who's got a tougher job in that he's coming in on alternating issues, so he's got to kind of make it look like Scott stuff. Um, and doing but, an admirable uh, job of that, by the way. Oh, isn't that, isn't that nice? I mean, yeah. uh, you you look between some of these th- these issues and you don't see where it's going back and forth. But I just think he's done a, a fabulous job, and he's he's one of the main designers of the Drac containment vest. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that con- uh, that containment vest, by the way. Oh yeah, and that was one of the first things in Kurt's outline. He's like, okay, we're going to build this vest, and it's going to have all this all this stuff in it. And then, but there was no design, obviously. And then um, uh, Scott and Damien went to work on that, and I just I just love it. So actually, why don't you tell our readers a little bit about our readers because people read our podcast. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. if, they, if they buy the transcripts, Paul. Yeah, if they buy the, yeah, <laughs> That's right. the, the script. Yeah, at the at the end of the graphic novel, we're going to put the script for today's show. Um, <laughs> just like brief summary of what Dracula: The Company of Monsters is about, because I, mean, I guess I, you know, should have started with that. I feel bad for all these people who have gotten through it this far and don't know what the hell. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So okay. So what it's about is um, it's it's a modern day story, and um, Kurt's Kurt's idea was to um, let's 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 do Dracula in a um, in a corporate environment. So the basic plot is that um, this corporation has sort of discovered Dracula's body. He didn't die at the end of the Stoker novel. Um, and basically, that's our only canon too is the Stoker novel, and that's that's pretty much it. Um, and uh, he did, but that that part of the Stoker novel is a lie, and and uh, they find his bones encased in honey, which um, during medieval times really was a preservative. Um, and so they find, and and in, and in history they um, uh, were pretty sure that they really did try to uh, encase Vlad the Impaler's head in honey. Um, to send it to the Sultan, um, but uh, that's slightly disputed. So I thought, well, that's a great idea. So this corporation resurrects Dracula because, of course, what else are you going to do? Uh, because you're in a comic book, is you're going to say, let's let's resurrect the world's greatest serial killer. Well, it seems like pale. a good idea. I mean, it what, seemed like a good so idea. <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and it's and. For me, the the metaphor is is like, yeah, of course we're going to drill in the Gulf Coast without many safety things because what can go wrong? That's right. 
Um, and so, of course, we're going to build – now we know it's like you know, we're going to build you know, nuclear reactors in an earthquake zone and maybe not inspect them as much as we were telling people we were doing. Um, so it's not hard to find examples of even greater corporate stupidity. And one of, one of Dracula's lines when they resurrect him is he's looking at the current news and he's thinking, these people have messed the world up. I mean I was a warlord, um, but I wasn't you know, uh, raping the planet basically. Um, so there's that whole question of like, well, who, you know, who's the greater evil, that kind of thing. Um, but I think what really makes the heart of the story is – our point of view character is Evan, who's the nephew of Conrad, who's the CEO who's found Dracula's body. And and he, Evan's kind of an aimless character who's looking for purpose in life and looking for a, a mentor. He's sort of a trust fund baby. He was supposed to be maybe the next in line to be CEO, but he just seems to have you know, no, uh, no gumption. And, um, and so he, he, he sort of uh, – attracted to Dracula because he seems to represent something that Conrad doesn't. He seems to represent something uh, old-fashioned like honor and purpose and that kind of thing, even though he was a killer. So um, he's sort of – Evan is sort of uh, trapped between these two powerful male figures, Conrad, his uncle, and Dracula. And um, we're not really sure which way he's going to go. And he also is discovering that he's capable of doing bad things um, but can't quite figure out a way to extricate himself from them. And so part of the process of the novel – I'm calling it a novel. Part of the process of the series is um, Evan having to grow up and sort of say – decide for himself what should he be doing, what are his talents, and – and who who is he going to follow, or is he going to finally learn to, um, you know, follow himself, be his own man? You mentioned, you know, about Vlad the Impaler's head being encased in. I was about to say kryptonite, uh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it was originally carbonite, and then yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then they converted to honey because you know, carbonite <laughs> didn't work out so well. Um, so, what type of research do you do for for you know as far as you know historical? On the Vlad the Impaler, you know, previous versions of Dracula, things like that. Yeah. So what I did was okay, was go back and reread the Stoker novel, um, and then it was um, I did a lot of reading about the historical uh, um, Vlad the Impaler, um, reading about the Ottoman Empire, the wars going on between Christianity and the Ottoman Empire, and and Russia and the Germans, and how everybody was turning on each other. Um, and so – because I wanted to have um, – Kurt's idea was that there's – that Dracula is basically a 15th century warlord and not a CEO. And so um, I went back and found a, a lot of details that I wanted to use to basically ground the story in that historical detail. Um, yeah, so that's that was so there was a lot of reading in the beginning about just getting the the historical stuff right. Like usually happens with research is that most of it you end up not using at all. So there's there's all these tidbits that especially as the as the story goes on, um, I kept wanting to find time for more flashbacks and couldn't fit them in because the plot just starts rolling, especially around issue number nine, uh, which I saw on your website. You guys reviewed and like I said, I haven't listened to it yet because I'm afraid. Uh, don't I'm, don't I'm, be afraid. It was a love fest. (laughs) (laughs) 
Except for that uh, Tim guy on our show who doesn't like horror, so don't listen to him. But the rest oh, of don't listen to it. Tim. That's good advice. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's really advice to live by. Don't listen to Tim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, by and by well by issue number nine, it's um, we sort of start this. We, that's the start of Act Three, and it's just a. Uh, a dead run to the beginning where Evan finally starts taking the reins and, and, um, and the plot keeps rolling from there. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a blast. So that brings me to, I I guess, a a sad question. Are are you done writing on company of monsters at this point? Well, I've, I finished number 12. We're still going through the proofing process. And then I think we're waiting. I mean, um, one nice thing is that Boom has been really supportive about this book. And Ross Ritchie, the publisher, uh, keeps talking about it. He, he just think he keeps talking about how it's one of his favorite books they've done. And so I think, um, they'd be willing to go further if the, if the sales were there. Mm-hmm. So one thing, so there's, um, I think, um, I think they're going to have Dracula 1 be out for free comic book day. And I think they're hoping the trades um, also trigger people, trigger more readers. And I think they're holding out the hope that if they, um, you know, if we, if we get the sales, we could come back to this. Cause I did outline a second year. <laughs> I said, look, we may not, we may not be able to go any further, but if we do year two, here's what I want to do. Um, and one nice thing about doing things at a, um, a non-shared universe. Like we're not in Marvel DC universe. So we can basically do anything we want to the world. Right. Um, and that's, um, that can be a tremendous amount of fun. So I basically, in year two, I had these ideas for taking the initial premises from year one and, um, and said, what if we kept, what if we kept along this path? Like how, how strange and out of control would it get? Um, and what would Evan what would Evan's path be like after that point? Uh, so I would love to. Yeah, I would love to be doing it. So go out and buy buy issues, people. That's all that that's all it takes. Really, <laughs> buy a couple thousand issues a week, and then we're good. We're fine. <laughs> all right, it's on you, people. <laughs> <laughs> we can do this that's if we right. just pull together for Daryl. <laughs> uh, we can make this it. happen. Do it for Daryl. Do it for Daryl. <laughs> we need T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sell them on the site. <laughs> I'll make my mom wear it. <laughs> now, Daryl, when I was on your website earlier today, I was con- mm-hmm. I, I had I had I had pegged you as British because you know I, I was reading it just Daryl Gregory sounded like Daryl Gregory, you know, <laughs> and I was reading the titles to your oh, books, actually- you know, Raising Stony May Hall. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and Paul's like, is he British? And I'm like, oh yeah, he's got to be. <laughs> oh yeah, he's got to be. He's, With a name like that, he's got to be British. No, it's uh, I'm I'm named after hillbillies, basically. You know, we're we're just kicked out of every decent country in Europe, as the National Lampoon once said. And so, uh, yeah, I think we're we're mutts, basically. My family, we're like Scotch, Irish, English. Um, there's a little Dutch in there, we think. Essentially, so, the whitest white people, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's it's like pure Appalachia. So I grew up in Chicago, but my parents uh, and all my relatives, and I have a I have a ton of relatives. I have, I have more cousins than you can beat with a stick, much less shake one at. And and they're all from East Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm like a um, 
I'm like a hillbilly who was raised in the north, as if raised by wolves. <laughs> so I can put on the southern accent when I when I go back down south. Um, but uh, I haven't tried. I, you know, I should be trying to pass myself off as British because they're much cooler, you know, than uh, some East Tennessee guy <laughs> or some like Chicago boy from the suburbs. When we have you on for your next interview, be sure and be sporting the British accent. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, your homework. I'm going to hang out with Paul Cornell. I'm like, could you just talk a little more? There you I'm go. I want to do exactly that. Because <laughs> he's so charming, too. You know, the British are so charming. I'm sure they, you know, like you just want to give them free drinks just so you can hang out with them. That's right. <laughs> so how did the Planet of the Apes gig uh, land in your lap? Well, it's yeah, it really did kind of land in my lap. Uh, Matt Gagnon, the editor-in-chief over at Boom, uh, called me up one afternoon and said, Look, we we have this we have this license. We want to do Planet of the Apes. Um, would you be interested? Uh, and I said, well, tell me more because I I grew up with Planet of the Apes. Uh, I was telling somebody that um, uh, that I think it was on constantly in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was either on Channel Seven for Ape Week or playing on WGN pretty much on a constant repeat. And so those those movies are totally baked into my brain. Um, but then the, the, the really the thing that sealed the deal, he said, look, we're doing this with the classic apes mythology. Uh, we're sort of not addressing the Tim Burton movie at all. We're not dealing with the reboot that's coming out with James Franco. It's the classic universe with those original five films. And we can do anything we want. <laughs> and I was like, really? Um, subject, of course, to you know Fox's approval. But we could – he said um, – you know, come up with an idea. What 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 do you want to do? We can use any part of the chronology, any time period, any set of characters, um, anything you want to do. So about 24 hours later, I had uh, a pitch back to him, an outline of kind of what I wanted to do. Because I, the great thing about Apes that I just I love about the franchise is that, um, you know, they 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 really they wear their hearts on the sleeves. Uh, they're the movies are completely about whatever social issues were going on in 1968, 71, uh, uh, you know, through the movies. Um, and so I thought, you know, we have a license here to to, to actually do a political comic um, and a philosophical comic. Um, while, of course, you got to provide the apes on horseback hunting down humans. That's sort of, you know, you got to put some of that in there. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I really was attracted to the idea that I could talk about. Um, Things that may have been bothering me, or things that um, that I think people would respond to today, and we're living in kind of a post nine eleven world. And some of the some of the uh, you know one of the ongoing themes from the movies is security versus freedom. And um, I I thought okay, that's that's still an ongoing topic. Let's let's see where we can go with that, and set the time set the time period of the series in a time period after. Um, after the apes have come back, this is, there's a really I don't know how this depends on how uh, how hardcore your listeners are about apes mythology, but most people I think saw the first movie, may have seen a little bit of the of the other movies, um, maybe no you know very few people watched all five sequels, um, but there's a complicated chronology that involves time travel where after the Charlton Heston movie. And after the sequel to the Charlton Heston movie, Cornelius and Zira go back in time to the 70s, um, and they they have the rise of the apes from that point on. And so um, 
I'm setting the this book um, after the last movie, but about 1,200 years before Charlton Heston arrives. And we have a time period where the humans aren't yet mute and they aren't savages running wild in the forest. Um, but the humans and apes are trying to live together and this utopia that they sort of build at the end of the last Planet of the Apes movie um, is completely breaking down. And so we've got an underclass of humans and an overclass of apes. So you've got the class differences and you also have this, you know, the xenophobia um, that where the apes are trying to build a stable society that is pretty much for apes first and humans second. And the humans are um, – Basically, trying to reclaim their um, well, I guess their human rights, and uh, yeah, so it's a so it's a it's a political action comic, I guess. I think in all of that, what I find the most disturbing is <laughs> you described a world in which not everyone has seen all five of the of the ape sequels. Um, <laughs> I'm having a hard time. I, I, I'm finding it abhorrent and and frankly unbelievable. <laughs> Well, I mean, I can fiction, Aaron. I can suspend some disbelief, Daryl, but uh, I, come on. <laughs> well, I, no, I, th- I thought the same thing. I thought, oh, everybody's seen these movies because I've seen them so many times. That's right. And then I was talking. My wife is like, "What are you talking about? What, what do you mean there's other movies?" I'm like, "Honey, come on! You've been married to a geek this long. How how could we have not had this conversation?" So I did a, a rewatch. I have a I have a 15 year old son. I'm like, Ian. We are sitting down. We are watching all the Apes movies. And even as the budget starts plummeting toward the last <laughs> movie, we're like, we're going to watch them, and you're going to watch them with me. And uh, even if I can't get your mom to watch them with me, we're doing this, man. Because you, you have to raise up your kids right, right? I That's mean, right. Agreed. They have, they have to see all five movies. That's right. Well, you know, the, the problem is that we live in a world where you can't have Ape Week anymore. You know, I mean, it, there used to be uh, uh, here in in uh, Dallas. There was dialing for dollars, and oh, yeah. you know, you, you it would be the the afternoon matinee, and then they'd break and they'd call somebody at random, and if they knew what movie was on, <laughs> they'd you know win a hundred dollars or something. You know, it's Ape Week. It was awesome, <laughs> and you had Ricardo Montalban in that second to the last movie. <laughs> I know it's so great to see yeah. to see Ricardo Montalban with that dark hair in this movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it, in those two movies. It's just fantastic. It's like, and you know what's sad is my my fifteen year old son, you know, has never seen Fantasy Island. Oh, he's yeah. never seen. I don't think he'd seen Wrath of Khan. So I'm like, oh man, I've not done fixed my that? job. Have man. you fixed that? No, I've I've not done it. I don't think. I don't think he's seen Wrath of Khan, which is a. I, I feel like a failure as a. This parent. is the second piece of your homework. Then for the next time <laughs> that you're on. Because uh, we'll need a report in British, <laughs> in your British accent, about your son having watched, uh, you know, Wrath of Khan. Because I mean, come on, Daryl, what are you doing? Yeah, I know. You see, Ricardo Montalban with his pectorals <laughs> is completely stunning as a human specimen. He's exactly perfect. Exactly. Oh, terrible British accent. I'm sorry. Well, you're going to work on it, though. You're gonna, my British friends. You're going to work on it. We we have faith. I, I got my homework. so you know in your in your planet of the apes mythology you're free to go wherever you want to go because you're you're post fifth movie right exactly okay so we can see we 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 shouldn't be surprised when when you just pull rabbits out of your hat left right and center i that's gonna be i mean that's that's really the fun that's really the fun part and i'm hoping 
because um, the whole trick is is I, I know those people who don't exist who haven't seen the five movies. Um, you, you've got to I mean, you've got to build a story that they can follow and follow along. But there's still the, the fans out there, and I'm as one of them, where you want to have these references and these nods to uh, um, not only characters but um, you know ongoing themes of the and even you know even some lines I'm doing some references to as this thing goes on. Um, so you're trying to you're trying to please both audiences, and and you and I'm perhaps doomed to fail because. If you're truly a hardcore hardcore apes person, you maybe don't want to have any other movie, you know, anything else besides the five films are the perfect things, and then um, everything else is a uh, a, a cruel joke, uh, you know, upon you that they they keep going that are that are tearing apart the apes universe. Um, but I'm hoping that we can please both sets of people and um, get new people in as as well. And I think part of that. Um, We'll see what happens with um, with the reboot of the Apes movie if people just pick it up out of curiosity, you know, and maybe we can hook those hook those people. Well, that first issue was a sellout, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, yeah, and that was that was that was very nice, and the reviews have been very kind. So um, we're we're hoping um, this this really is an ongoing series. I'm not lying to you now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and where I do have, I have the first year outlined, uh, but it really is. I'm trying, like we were talking about earlier, uh, coming up with the story engine. Um, the nice thing about the Planet of the Apes universe is it really that that's something the movies really couldn't do, especially as the budgets were getting lower um, later in the series. Um, they couldn't do a whole a planet. Um, and one thing we have is we have the entire world to play with, and so if we can keep going, I think we could go. Um, you know, further and deeper into into the mythology because we've got, you know, what has happened to the? We're about six hundred years after a nuclear war, after the apes have you know started talking, and uh, what's happened in the rest of the world? Um, we've got other continents out there, and what's even what's even outside of you know Ape City? Um, we're not setting. I've I've sort of made up a new city called Mac that's sort of like the equivalent of Chicago, my hometown, where sort of a sprawling industrial. Um, uh, city uh, to the west of Ape City, um, but we're gonna. I was thinking we can do, uh, we can take this, you know, wherever we we need to go, and we could keep fleshing out the world as long as uh, we keep people entertained. So, about how far out? I mean, so far do you have outlined, or in so your I have head? The, I have the first year outlined, but the general plan of the book is to is constant escalation. <laughs> <laughs> So, because what I want to do is take the political ramifications of uh, of an overclass and an underclass, um, where you know where the apes have most of the power, and just keep following that, and make it more complicated and more gray, and um, completely avoid black and white things. Uh, but the ultimate pleasure of the book, I think, will be if you are citing if you could see the point of view of both sides, um, and be appalled by both sides. I think there's just no. Um, it's it's not it's not very black and white. So in that way, it is kind of a, a kind of a political book. In that, um, I, I want to have I want both sides to have their point of view, uh, and have them argue for it as strongly as possible, and uh, have people rooting for people who do terrible things later, <laughs> and then change their minds, and then root for other people who then do terrible things, and then terrible people, terrible characters who do good things, and. Um, 
and uh, keep going from there. Well, I, I'm a huge fan of talking monkey books, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th- th- this is a no-brainer for me. I, I really enjoyed uh, Planet of the Apes, number one, and that's a, a little unusual for me to say in terms of licensed properties. You know, I'm not a big oh, yes. fan of, of when licensed properties come to comics, but thoroughly enjoyed this book. Well, that's, I mean, that is a stigma with the licensed things, and that was one of my hesitations was, well, how restrictive will the license be? Yeah. But when I realized that um, they were really um, giving us you know, license to really tell whatever story like I, that I really wanted to tell, I, that's what got me, um, got me hooked on it. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm happy, and, uh, and hopefully we'll, um, we'll keep the Talking Monkey fans happy. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, one of my favorite Talking Monkeys right now in comics is in iZombie. Um, Chris, Chris Robertson has a, has a character, um, he has a complicated mythology with, with zombies and vampires and werewolves and, and trapped souls. And one, one guy's grandfather's soul gets trapped inside a monkey and who starts talking. And he's the most hilarious character in, in the book. Uh, just, a, just an excellent series if you can pick that up. Now, I hadn't read iZombie yet, but I'm, I'm a huge zombie fan. And now that you've mentioned that there's a talking monkey in it. I, that'll be See, the next that thing seals the deal right there. Yeah, you, yeah I, sold. <laughs> yeah, I'm all on that. I'm going to make this a rule for any comic I work in at this point. I, like at some point, I have to have a talking monkey in, just just to get your vote. So you know, exactly. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so you've got to sit back and 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 go. You know. Damn, my, my first book was Dracula. My second book was Planet of the Apes. 13-year-old me is doing cartwheels. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, you know, the, the 13-year-old Daryl is just very excited. One, to just be working in comics, period. Um, you know, if, we, if you grow up in comics, and that's how I really learned to read, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, I mean, nothing is really better. And, and as a writer, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous amount of fun to learn a completely different way of writing. Sure. Uh, uh, and especially, and to have something where, uh, when I'm working on my books, it's basically all me alone in the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still all me in that first draft. But then it immediately becomes this very collaborative process because the other half of the storytelling team is the artist. And it doesn't work if you guys aren't working together. And mm-hmm. so that's been a tremendous amount of fun. Cause, and it, and it, it feels like a different kind, it feels more like movies sometimes um than 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 prose writing because it feels so collaborative you, sure. you're talking to an editor an artist and um and you're trying to make the story work uh on all those levels and it's it's just a lot of fun so do you have any other comic work in the in the can right now or that you're ready to talk about no i can't but uh because because you're trapped under something heavy. No, no. So, so the answer. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually speaking to you from the bottom of a well. I'm waiting for my. I'm waiting for my dog to bring a rope. <laughs> so you, you've got something that, that you're yes, not. <laughs> but I can't talk about it. That's what that sounded like to me. That's what it sounded okay. like to me as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like. Here's what I, I'll say. Oh yeah, I, I've got a hundred projects that I can't talk about. And that would make it sound much more impressive than what I'm actually working on. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've got, I mean, uh, on the prose side, I mean, which knowing comics is probably interested in, I've got a novel coming out in, in June. If you like zombie novels, so this is my anti-zombie novel, zombie oh, novel. Hold on. It's called Raising Stony Mayhall. Raising Stony Mayhall. <laughs> <It's> incredible. 
wait, I can do. Wait, maybe I can only do British accents if I'm, you know, impersonating someone specific. So maybe if I do John Oliver, uh-huh. uh, it's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my anti-zombie novel. Uh, it's basically the uh, uh, the story of a dead boy, his entire life and and possible resurrection. Uh, well, his death, resurrection, re-death, possible re- res- <laughs> re-resurrection. It's just fun and games with basically the the, the gospel of Matthew, basically. Oh. And yeah. so that, that comes out in June? That comes out the end of June. And then um, I'm going to do a short story collection. It's going to come out from uh, from a small press in the, in the fall. And then, um, yeah, so basically it's just like I, I'm trying to put together a life where I can um, – uh, write books and short stories and 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 comic books um, because like I said I'm trying to base my entire life off of my friends and I want to do what they're doing now <laughs> you you're writing talking monkeys you're writing an anti uh, zombie book and you also uh, I'm trying to look at the year on this I, I forget what what year it was but you contributed a robot short story to a we robots anthology oh what well, you know that's the weirdest thing it's you know that that's a robot anthology, but that is really a superhero story. Oh, is it? I, I haven't read it. I uh, just saw the the. Yeah, so I um I I write short stories, and so I've done a couple. I've done two two short stories that are basically superhero short stories. Um, the one that, that's in that anthology that also was in a, a couple other anthologies is called the 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 uh, illustrated biography of Lord Grimm, and it's basically a minion's eye view of what it's like to live on Doctor Doom's island, and um and where you're sitting on this island, and every few months or so, uh, you know, an army of superheroes comes in, uh, uh, blows the hell out of the place, and then flies out, and then you have to pick up all the wreckage again, and, and your crazy maniacal uh, uh, leader, who you kind of respect because he's kind of a cool guy and he's got the armor and everything, um, you have to start building your giant robots again. And I think it got into the robot anthology because, uh, you know, Dr. Doom has all those robots. Doombots. And somebody's got to build all those Doombots. Exactly. Yeah. And it's about somebody who works in the robot factory. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a great anthology with um, called Masked that uh, Chris Robertson, Matt Sturgis, Paul Cornell, Bill Willingham, um, Marjorie Liu um, – uh, I'm forgetting a bunch of people, but a bunch of comic book people who also write prose, um, Gail Simone's in it, um, Peter David. Um, they're all writing an anthology of superhero stories, and they're just, that's a that's a really strong strong collection. And that was a lot of fun. Is that already uh, that out? Called, yep, that's out. You can still find it. It came out last year. It's um, called, um, and we I think we did our first debut at uh, Comic Con last year. And we did a panel on it, um, and it's 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 a tremendous amount. It's a tremendous amount of fun, huh. and it's a uh, some some really strong writing there. And it, they're just all they're all superhero stories from people who understand superhero stories. So they're not written from the outside, sort of looking down on them. Uh, these people love love superhero comics. I'll I'll have to look out for that one. I've not seen that one. See, don't be afraid to talk about prose on here. Our listeners are smart intelligent people who like pros. <laughs> they don't need the big pictures. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying they can read pages with just all words on them. That's but for God's sake, don't put an essay in the back of your comic because we'll chew you up about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't propose in the back. Yeah. It has to separate it. <laughs> See, that was actually my first comics job was writing an essay about Philip K. Dick in the back of uh, 
Chris Roberson was doing for Boom a prequel to uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and uh, and I um, in one of my novels I actually have Philip K. Dick as a character show up, and for some reason. Uh, because I've been reading and talking about Philip K. Dick a lot, people kept writing me, asking me to write essays about him. So uh, I actually committed the cardinal sin of putting an essay in the back of the comic book um, as the first thing I ever did in comics. So I'd like to apologize right now to you, <laughs> your, readers, your listeners. You know, it, the essay is actually less objectionable than the uh, than the actual prose story in the back. So yeah. and we'll talk about that. Why is that? So what, what, what how does that feel when you hit that? I mean, well, what? I gotta be, okay. So for example, uh, brew bakers, uh, criminal and, um, what's the one I just read incognito. Incognito, yeah. yeah. You know, they have, uh, the Jess Nevins essays in the back about classic pulp heroes, things like that. Hmm? Totally interesting. I am, I, I jumped and I read those before I read the comic. I oh, love yeah. Jess is a that stuff. Um, but if like a prose story in the back, and we don't want to specifically reference what we're referring to, do we, Aaron? <laughs> oh, is this still on? Are we still recording? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just let it go, Paul. Just let it go. But yeah, but it's it's the it's the prose fiction that's rather jarring when you're in the middle of your sequential uh, art storytelling, and then bam, you know, wall of uh, of text for five pages. And I think we, you know, what the difference is, you pay for the prose fiction in a comic book, whereas you don't. The essay is more of like bonus material. It, it okay, you feel like it's taking like they could have given me more comic. Well, you know, it, it's a three ninety nine comic, and you're you're getting you know somewhere between twenty two and twenty eight pages, and the rest of it's filled up with prose. You just feel like maybe they could have adjusted the price down. And I could have right. just paid for what I wanted as opposed to have gotten this. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. piece of crap that they made me wait through. I, I, I'm, all <laughs> yeah. yeah. Listen to enough episodes. You'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, what I really enjoyed, like, I remember when, um, you know, reading Watchmen as it came out. Yeah. Um, that. I, I really did enjoy um, – it wasn't so much stopping for an entire story, but when they would – he would build in all those prose items. Yeah, the that, under the hood. Uh, yeah, like under yeah. the hood and stuff. I mean I ate that up, and I was trying yeah. to explain to somebody what it was like to be reading Watchmen as it came out, where you had an entire month between issues to think about, and he gave you all the stuff to chew on. Um, and all these mysteries to sort of think about and talk about. And it's so much different than like when I handed the series to my son, he could read the entire run, you know, in one sitting. Yep. And it just didn't seem to have the same weight to it. I think yeah. it was I think it's the same issue probably with the movie for Watchmen, is that there's something about the the kind of mental weight of the actual weight of a month that seems to make uh comics read differently um than um than other things. Yeah, you know, because you're you the there are so much. There's such a pulp nature to Watchmen, you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of what's going to happen next, you know. And and I absolutely, I, I remember standing around the the comic shop, everybody speculating on what was going to happen next, how it was going to wind up, you know. And right. when, you know, you don't have that when you read it in trade. So yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with you about about it loses something in the in the in the translation to a collected edition. 
Well, also in the in collected edition, I don't know if you would pause to read all that under the hood text and the the you know the newspaper clippings and all that stuff. Right. Because it's just so enticing to keep moving on. Um, that I don't know if you would really because you know because you get done with the comic and you had nothing to do but read all that stuff looking for clues basically because you felt like the thing I really loved about Watchmen and I still copy in a lot of the stuff I work on is is I just felt there were just layer after layer and so and they were like Easter eggs so in in most things I work on I'm trying to put in lots of stuff that maybe only things that I will get but but I have this theory I have, it's kind of a religious faith. That if I put lots of stuff in, even if no one gets it, it will feel like there's more there. Um, and um, so I have a rule that um, nothing I put in can interrupt the plot or be necessary to the plot. Like you shouldn't have to know any inside information to follow the story or be engaged by the story. But if there are extra things in there, extra references, like if you happen to be a Planet of the Apes fan, you will get a reference back to some of the other movies. Um, that maybe somebody else it'll go it'll go over their head, but that seems like fair play to me. And and so even if you don't get the reference, you you get this kind of feeling that there is a reference, that there's a level of depth there that that um, it's not just all surface. Right. I don't like I said this is a religious this is a religious argument to <laughs> give myself an excuse to basically put all this stuff in that no one will get and. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, play along, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I like. That's what I like. <laughs> so Daryl, any parting words? Can I? So when did you guys start? Let me look back on the history here. Well, when, you know, yeah, when was, like, Paul and I started. We started talking about comics. We both work for the same company, but Paul works on in on the East Coast, and I, I work in the South. And you know, we're we're kind of we're friends through email and through teleconferences, and neither one of us knew that the other was a comic book guy and I forget uh-huh. who made what comment, but there, it, was, it was almost, it was some kind of like, you know, only a comic book guy would know that. And so, you know, my, my, my spider sense started tingling. I'm like, I think this, <laughs> I think this guy's all right. And so, you know, I started kind of, you know, making some references and Paul started kind of making some references. And the next thing, you know, we're talking comics. And so he and I would email each other, you know, uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays about the books that we bought that week. And I was like, you know, because I, I had a, a blog of my own at that time, and I said, you know, I'm going to compile these and make them a blog entry. And so I did. And I, you know, I called it, you know, Funny Books Theron and Polly. And then he and I decided to create the Ideology of Madness website. And you were like, okay, well, we'll continue that blog entry. I'm like, screw that, let's do a podcast. And so that's how that kind of grew up. Yeah. And when, when did that? When did you start posting up the podcast? Uh, about two years ago, almost. Yeah, almost just okay. about. Yeah. Uh, we do it weekly. Yeah, we started with two folks, just me and Aaron, and now we have five regular hosts. Um, but they don't get week. they don't get title billing though. No, screw those guys. <laughs> uh, I mean, the great thing about it, I mean, I just love the fact that, um, I, like, you know, being reliable is completely underrated. Like, uh-huh. you know, to just keep coming back because I. You know, you don't want to get emotionally invested in people who are going away, right? You know, who like, oh, this is a fad I had, uh, and now we broke up, and we're not going to talk anymore. Well, the 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 hundred weekly episodes, those are us generally talking about the comics that came out the week before, um, and then we have an interview series, which your interview will fall into, called New Comic Book Day Interviews, 
and in which we drop on you know new comic book day and then we also have a series of uh role-playing actual play uh uh, where we created a superhero universe and we're actually uh, playing the game and, play, yeah, and doing that actual play. So it's a, it's we've got a lot of content out there in addition to all the blog posts. How many hours a week are you putting on this? Uh, we do two every week for the – generally two hours every week for the uh, uh, weekly show. And then you know the, the interviews are kind of ad hoc when uh, folks are available. And then the uh, – the uh, uh, RPG stuff is about two hours a week, but that's not. I mean, we kind of did like a first season where there are eight episodes of that, and then we're we're getting we're we've got three episodes in the can now for our second season of the actual play. So, well, that's 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 amazing, guys. But you know, hey, the, the, the great thing is, is that you know we all like each other, <laughs> and you know we actually we actually you know once a year we travel to St. Louis to go to this one convention, and y'all you know, all get to see each other. So you know. We all like that's it. pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, are, are any of you going to um, San Diego this year? I don't expect that I'll be at San Diego this year. I would love to, but I just—it's a little tricky for me on the East Coast to try to get out there. And you know, San Diego gets so insane. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I went for the first time last year, um, and it was just sort of mind blowing. So I would sort of just retreat to the bar, like I didn't. <laughs> like, which is which is where, uh, oddly enough, a lot of the writers are hanging out. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is this is the con that's going on with the writers. And uh, uh, but yeah, it is kind of mind blowing. I've, I've gone to a lot of science fiction conventions, but uh, Comic Con, uh, yeah, really it's just a zoo. It's, but it's you know, just, for, it's just amazing for guys like yourself that are in the industry. You kind of have to go because that's like where deals happen, right? Well, yeah, and also it's it's um it's a chance to meet like I've I've been working with Ian Brill, the editor of Planet of the Apes, and we've not met in person, you know. And yeah. there's there's a mammal thing that goes on, like you just somehow just need to meet people in pe- in person yeah. and go, oh, okay, uh, you know, and you groom each other and pull your nits out of your hair <laughs> and, and, and do all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but there there's a very human thing that it's really important just to get together with the people you work with. Well, like you guys are doing in St. Louis, I yeah. mean. Um, it, um, it's, it's weird how, um, the internet doesn't completely substitute for that stuff. It no. just helps a lot yeah. because you know how bad things can go over, over email. And oh, so yeah. just, yeah, knowing that the real, what the real person is like helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Face to the voice. It's, it's important. Or well, cool. so well, I, what I, I'm hoping that we can, um, I'd love to meet you guys at some point and oh, I yeah. need to go to more com. So so it, give me one piece of advice. What what con should somebody who's new to comics be going to? Like what 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 do you recommend? Do you guys have a favorite con? You know, uh, we at least I feel that I like more the cons that actually focus on the comics. Like, you know, and you can focus on you know, on novels and things like that also. But you right, know, something but not like the San Diego Comic-Con is all about, I mean, you know, you have Vampire Diaries and Gossip Girl yeah. doing panels and stuff at San Diego Comic Con. Right. Um, you know, where some of these other shows really are focused on the comics. You know, they're not going to have, you know, uh, the wrestler who was popular in 1975, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, you know, so like um, we have on the East Coast, we have uh, Charlotte, in Charlotte, North Carolina, there's Heroes Con, which, oh, okay. is, which is a pretty big one. Um, 
one of the biggest on the East Coast, you know, besides, of course, you've got – Yeah, because I'm York in Pennsylvania, so East Coast is good. Okay, so you you know we I mean of course you've got New York Comic Con, Boston Comic Con, oh not Baltimore Comic Con, I'm sorry. I think Baltimore's in mm-hmm. August. That sounds and, about uh, right. Yeah, there's a that that's got a pretty uh pretty good uh guest list there, I think. Uh they just announced Jeff Smith I think was going to be there and Okay. You know, so that, that you know, I I like those types of cons. And and those I I would rather go to Baltimore Comic Con or Charlotte um, Heroes Con, something like that, even more yeah. so than San Diego. Because even though you know all sorts of cool announcements happen in San Diego or New York, I just I don't like the fact that tickets sell out in one day. Yeah, you know, that, oh, right. I just don't want to be jam packed in. I want to be able to enjoy and actually look at comics and things like that. Well, and and my big thing, and, and kind of like what Paul's saying is, I kind of like those regional cons because you really get to talk to the talent. You know, oh, exactly. um, you, know, you go to San Diego and, and, you know, they're they're talking to actual real media guys, whereas, you know, the podcaster, you know, is really low on their, their list of priorities. And, you know, in, a, in addition to getting to actually interview, you know, talent at the at these things, I actually make friends at them. Uh, Jake Ekus, who is an indie comic artist uh, who does a lot of work for our site. Um, I met him at a Wizard World convention here in Texas. And, okay. you know, he and I've been chummy ever since, and he's drawn a lot for us. Um, you know, we've gotten to, I've gotten to talk to a, a lot of talent at these at these little events, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. I, I've got a buddy who lives out there in San Diego, and he's like, come and stay with me and go to the con. And I'm like, yeah, I, I really kind of like being able to talk to people. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. You know, I felt the same way when I was breaking into science fiction. I go to, like the World Science Fiction Convention, and um, I, I always felt like a stalker approaching the writers, right? <laughs> right. Because you've got all the you get so many fans, and it's such a press that they're sort of on guard a little bit. And uh, so I just felt like I was completely bothered them, annoying them, and trying to force my way in rather than having it just be hanging out and have it be like you said, you know, have time to talk, right? Um, so yeah, I, um, yeah, I think I need to find a more conventions that are that smaller regional yeah. size. And I've heard good things about the people at heroes con. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've got a buddy who will never let me, uh, live down what happened when we went to this one convention back when we were in high school and, uh, <laughs> George Takei was there and it was a really small convention. And, you know, he's like, well, I'm going to go to lunch, you know, after his panel, I'm going to go to lunch. Uh, across the street to Red Lobster. Who wants to come with me? And my buddy's like, <laughs> "That's great." My buddy goes, Let, "Let's go to lunch with George Takei." I said, "Nah, I don't." Want to. He's like, "Well, why not?" I don't like Red Lobster. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> he has never let me live that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, George had just picked something else. Yeah, so, yeah. so come on, Dane to hang out with the man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daryl, thanks so much for coming on. This was a hoot. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the love, especially for especially for Dracula, our little uh, our little forgotten comic that I'm hoping we'll find some you know for some more readers. Well, we we will continue to heap tons of love on it, and uh, you know because I, I well I hope you like how it ends. I I think we're going someplace good, and I think um, yeah. Wait, I mean, boy, I just saw the final art for. Um, I saw the final art for number number eleven, which is which is a huge, a huge issue, and then the wrap up for twelve is more elegiac, and it's uh, yeah, I I'm hoping people like this. The art is beautiful in this one. Well, awesome. 
Well, I'm again, excited. again, thanks a bunch because you know we're really enjoying the books, and it's always a pleasure to talk to guys who like to talk about comics. Oh, I love it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Awesome. No problem. Keep in touch. Definitely. All right. Well, I will. Take it easy, guys. Catch thanks, Carol. Bye. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast. <laughs>